Our passage uh, that we're reading today that is our basis for our sermon is from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on our bulletin. It's printed there. As he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done What was our duty? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today's passage ends a section in Luke where Jesus's teaching has been really focused on the kingdom of God. And that has been sort of the key element of all these parables that we have looked at. Since chapter 13, We've been introduced to over 10 of Jesus's most memorable parables, the mustard seed, the yeast in the dough, the narrow door, the great banquet, counting the cost, salt losing its flavor, lost sheep, lost coins, two lost sons, the shrewd manager, and last week, the rich man and Lazarus. These all tell us what the kingdom of God is like and who welcomes the kingdom of God, and actually who rejects it. Jesus has introduced to us a memorable cast of characters that surprise us, not um, because they're so unusual, but it's the unusual and oftentimes people we didn't expect who end up embracing and coming into the kingdom of God, while those who we would anticipate to be first in line, to understand and to adopt Jesus's message of the kingdom, who are actually opposed to it from the get-go. It's not the well-educated, it's not the morally upright, it's not the religious, it's not the rich, but instead it's the bankrupt, it's the small, it's the lost, it's the morally suspect. It's these people who, because of their lives, are humble enough to actually be ready for the kingdom of God. And here in chapter 17, Jesus directly turns to his disciples, who, like most of us, are kind of scratching their heads, going, what is this kingdom of God about? And why do these people that we didn't expect 
find entry into it while those we were expecting are left standing on the outside looking in. And here he talks about three key aspects of life in the kingdom that they are now in and that they will find of vital importance for the rest of their lives. He talks about sin. He talks about faith. And he talks about humility. In verses one through four, he begins to tell us that sin is inevitable, that it's inevitable. It's uh, in this life, a key aspect of part of our experience, that sin stains and permeates everything and all that we encounter. He says it in a couple of ways. He says, um, the temptations are sure to come, or another translation said, there will always be temptations. Jesus is talking about Christian discipleship and living in the kingdom is not about pretending that sin does not exist, but in living in such a way where its presence is anticipated and prepared for. One of the things that we see throughout the pages of scripture from the very beginning through the very end is that sin tells us two lies. The first lie is that sin is no big deal. You hear this in the garden, you hear this in the book of Proverbs, you hear it echoed through all the pages of scripture. The first lie of sin is that it's no big deal. And the second lie of sin is that once you're enmeshed in it, that there's no way out. The power and the ability of sin is its lie to ensnare us and then to cause us to despair of being able to get out at all. And those two lies are exactly here in this passage where Jesus is teaching to his disciples, to you and I, has a powerful resonance that sin is inevitable. Yes, it's going to be present. And it's foolish for Christians to think that somehow it's not present. But here in this passage, the first two verses, uh, verse two through the first part of verse three, Jesus tackles head on this idea that sin is no big deal. Because he says, basically, it's better to die a violent death than to cause someone else to sin. It's talking about little ones or children. He's talking about people within uh, the kingdom, new people, new believers, those that have been lost and are now found, those that are stumbling into the kingdom of God. And he's saying, look, sin is incredibly powerful. And it would be disastrous for you to tell other people that it's no big deal. And for them to get enmeshed in this same sort of thinking. One of the things that the disciples must be thinking that you and I, after reading all and hearing all these parables, might be tempted to think is thinking, wow, God is so gracious. He's this welcoming host. He's a loving father. But just because he's gracious does not mean that he isn't a warrior who stands absolutely committed to obliterating evil and sin. And so that's one of the mistakes that Jesus here is telling his disciples in this little story about a millstone to make them understand the weightiness of sin, that it's power, and that God, because he is gracious, 
is warning them of the damage of adopting a cavalier attitude towards it. But the second thing he does here in verses three, the second part of verse three and verse four, is uh, talk about there is a way out of sin. That sin happens, it's going to occur. Even God's people, even those in the kingdom are going to face it and its consequences. But there is a way out for those of us when we fall into it. And the way out is kind of surprising. The way out is if another believer sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And do this repeatedly, seven times. Not, you know, we've seen in the other parts of Scripture where Jesus' disciples struggle with this idea of the repeatability of forgiveness. And Jesus makes this astronomical claim that it's 70 times seven, basically an enormous amount of times. We're supposed to always forgive when repentance is sought. The way out of sin that Jesus is marking here is that the way out is through caring for one another to talk about hard things without just dismissing and cutting the other person off. Rebuking in this passage is not assuming something about another. Rebuking is an attitude of going to your brother and asking and seeking understanding, a willingness to talk about a very difficult thing with them in order to bring about healing and restoration. Rebuking, I think, has a very negative connotation. It has a connotation of shaming. But here in this passage and in the character of Jesus being revealed, we see that rebuking is more of a stance of initiation to go to one another, that the way out of the entrapment to sin is by us actually caring enough for one another to engage and to dialogue. We, in our family, adopted sort of a, uh, a variation of this when our kids were very little and we began to realize that sin <laughs> is part of the family experience and that uh, having to ask forgiveness and grant forgiveness is an everyday experience in the life and the household of raising children. In fact, it's true of all of us, but we see it most pointedly when we have little kids around. And so one of the ways Kate and I adopted this practice was when someone needed to apologize to the other, we would not let them say, I'm sorry, and leave it. Instead, we had this liturgy of forgiveness where the person would have to say, will you forgive me for, and then actually say the thing that they needed forgiveness for, or you offended me by, and specifically saying the way that forgiveness needed to be given or granted. The power of this began to be seen in our family is that Initially, oftentimes people or kids or adults would come and say, hey, I messed up. I need forgiveness for X. And the offended party would say, actually, X is not the reason I'm offended. It's actually Y, which would then open up a dialogue about what was really going on behind the scenes, behind the situation that was the real and genuine offense. 
in our family, we found this to be a powerful way of rebuking in a way that actually brought repentance and change. Because what we began to see is that when the real issue is surfaced, genuine grace could be applied to that situation and healing could be really seen in a powerful way. Sin is inevitable and the way out of it or the way through it is through forgiveness, richly sought and richly given through this action of initiating a a stance of going to one another in order to to unearth and to surface what's really going on. So sin is inevitable. But in this passage, that's not the end of the story. There's this beautiful and incredibly powerful verse, verse five and verse six, where we see faith is unstoppable, that faith is unstoppable. The disciples in response to this teaching on forgiveness uh, exclaim, increase our faith, or kind of as I read it and hear them, I kind of hear them saying, Lord, have mercy. Who can do this? This seems so incredible. We need more faith in order to do this. But notice that Jesus answers not their appeal for more faith, but he makes an assumption that this way of living is not impossible. Instead, he is saying to them, they already have faith. As tiny as it is, it's enough. And we know they have faith. They believed in Jesus. They're following him. They're on the way to Jerusalem. This is in the last you know, six months at most of Jesus's ministry. So these disciples have exhibited faith. They followed. They've left. They have reimagined their lives in light of this kingdom of God. They have faith. And Jesus is saying, the question isn't give you faith you don't already have. The question is, let me show you how to use the faith that has already been given, as small as it may seem to you. And then he says, this thing which you may think is so small as to be not even present is so powerful. It's powerful enough to do outrageous things with. You don't need more. You just need to use what you already have. The gift of faith has been granted. The stories that Jesus has told in the last little set of parables are about small things like yeast, like seeds, that have tremendous impact when they just simply grow. But it's really the third thing here in this passage that Jesus talks about that reveals how that faith, as small as it is, can be exercised to incredible ends where a mulberry bush can be planted in the sea, this impossible thing. So sin is inevitable. Faith is unstoppable. But humility is the, is the essence. It, humility is essential to life in the kingdom and to understanding its power. In verse 7 through 10, Jesus tells this last parable in this section of parables that stitches all these three things together, sin and faith and humility. And he shows this servant who's been working all day, who gets home, 
and the master sets him to work serving him dinner without thinking anything of it. And in verse 10, Jesus makes this remarkable comment. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are not worthy of praise. We are servants who had simply who have simply done our duty. Humility just isn't the key ingredient for entry into the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about. It's also the key requirement for living in it ongoing, for exercising faith, for dealing with sin in ourselves and others. Humility is the essential component that brings faith into a way of dealing with sin and living a life of abundance that is possible in the kingdom of God. Humility doesn't seem attractive. Humility is not something that's touted in our modern culture as a aspirational value. But here Jesus is putting his finger and saying, humility is the actual ignition for living the kind of life you long for. I had an experience one time uh, where I was working very strenuously for and very hard, very diligently for a goal that I had set. And that goal evaporated instantly overnight at the almost last second of me having worked for years to accomplish it. And I remember very distinctly driving in my car late at night on an empty highway and just being very angry with God, very forcefully, prayerfully talking to him in a way that was bringing up my own anger and disappointment. And in a very clear way, and I don't believe necessarily in hearing voices from heaven, but I had a very clear impression at that moment of my complaint where I felt like the Lord said to me, Sam, do you serve me for me or do you serve me for what I give you? Do you serve me for me or do you serve me for what I give you? Humility is willingness to take that question and to be able to let it come to you, to come to us and to humble us. In that moment, I realized that I had been serving God for what he gave me. And that's what's happening here in this passage. That faithful humility consists in doing what God has given you to do, especially the unexciting things, without shirking or grumbling. But also without thinking that your effort is changing God's opinion of you. His opinion is settled. He loves you. He has um, sent his son to rescue you. He has redeemed you at great cost. He loves you beyond all measure. The work he sets before you is for you to take out the mustard seed of faith and step into the challenge armed with his unshakable determination to mold you into a person who displays his character to the world. God's agenda is fulfilled in our humility, in our submitting to letting him be Lord, 
to letting him tell us what to do and where to go and how to employ our time and our effort and our skills. It is a humility that's based in a very deep understanding of the character of God as someone who is worthy of our service, of someone who cares for us, who loves us, who is calling us into service, not in order to enslave us, but in order to free us to be the people we were created to be. Sin is inevitable. Faith is unstoppable. Humility is essential. Are you facing something that seems an impossible hill to climb at the moment? Because sin is inevitable in this life. Could it be that behind the situation is something that's related to sin that you need to examine? Our officer training right now is going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And one of the questions about what is sin, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, which basically means sin is anything that's outside of the character of God. In our impossible situations, oftentimes there's a situation that is outside of the character of God that we need to bring out. If so, simply go to your father who loves you, receive his forgiveness, and then involve others. That's what the church is all about, involving others to help you live in his grace and power. But also because faith is unstoppable, take that impossible mountain and reimagine it through the eyes of faith. Jesus gives us uh, in this parable and in basically all of his parables, an incredible ability to reimagine what is possible in light of his kingdom. And so if you're facing one of those impossible mountains that seems overwhelming and impossible to achieve, imagine what could happen if you in vivid detail imagined it in light of the kingdom of God and Jesus's power to change anything. What does character working in that challenge look like in its end? What would the sycamore tree uprooted and planted in the ocean look like in that challenge? What would be a, the happiest, most kingdom-oriented change that is possible? Fill your imagination with that. And then use that to incite you to pray in light of that possibility. Lastly, humility is essential. Those first two things of scanning and seeing if there's sin and reimagining based on faith, those two things are actually put into place by then recognize the essential nature of humility in this process. And so in humility, you can step by identifying just what is the first next thing that needs to happen that I can submit and do in order to foster this change. And as we humbly begin to do that thing, as we humbly begin to trust the character of our master, of our father, of the one who cares for us. We can let go 
of the weight of trying to affect the change simply by our behavior, that we can faithfully begin to execute humility in the daily actions of going about the change. Sin, faith, humility. All these things are essential parts of Jesus's understanding of the kingdom of God. And it's a call to all of us, whether we're Christians, whether we've been following Jesus for a long time or just a short time, or even if we're not yet sure of our place in Jesus's kingdom. These three elements give us a tremendous power in order to think about our lives differently, to organize our days with hope, and to step forward into obedience in the very daily details of our lives. Jesus is an incredible realist, even as he gives us a picture of what is possible through his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for these words that challenge us. We thank you for the challenge to reconsider at every point how deep the stain of sin goes. Thank you for the hope of faith that things can and will be very different when your kingdom comes to its full. And Lord, thank you that we have work to do. We have steps we can take. We have ways of humbly submitting to your will on a daily basis that hasten that day's coming. Lord, these things are amazing, and we thank you for your grace to us through our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We don't have the Lord's table being virtual today, but I just want to call your attention to every week we have prayers that are printed in the bulletin for various conditions, different places people may find themselves. And there's a prayer on page nine, a prayer for those struggling against sin that I'd like to just read before we move to our next hymn. Lord Jesus, give me the ability to see you 
See in you the fulfillment of all my needs and desires and help me to turn from every false source of satisfaction to feed on you the true and living bread. Enable me to lay aside the sin that clings so closely to me and run with perseverance the race that you have set before me, looking only to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.